So with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Jim Parody, the Robert Metcalf Professor of Writing and Media Studies, who's going to introduce our today's speaker. So Jim. Thanks, Scott. Uh, welcome to the uh, Comparative Media Studies Colloquium at MIT. Uh, I think there's a number of people from uh, MIT and outside of MIT. I'm Jim Parody, a faculty member of Comparative Media Studies and Writing. Our talk this afternoon is Creating Space for Balance, Indigenous Knowledge and Western Science, Two-Eyed Seeing in Environmental Justice and Media. Our featured speaker is uh, Patricia Salas, this year's MLK Visiting Scholar, uh, also Executive Director of the Maliseet Nation Conservation Council, and a member of the Maliseet Tribe of Indigenous People, whose lands lie along the St. John uh, Willistock River and its watershed along both sides of the US and Canada. The river empties into the Bay of Fundy. It's a, a very tremendous river. Uh, Ms. Solis is an experienced tribal policy administrator, an environmentalist, and educational planner. A recording of this talk will be posted Friday uh, at the CMS website. Two-eyed seeing has been a contemporary concept by, uh, of two indigenous uh, Mi'kmaq elders in Cape Breton, Canada. Through the use of indigenous oral tradition, elders Dr. Albert Marshall and Dr. Murdena Marshall have participated in many recordings of their concept and teaching. Their appearances at conferences across Canada and the US have provided many venues to share their work. In our presentation this afternoon, uh, Patricia will feature clips of the two elders speaking and provide some perspective on how their work could be brought forward in discussions of environmental justice and media. Patricia, welcome and it's all yours. Well, Ewan, Professor Paradis, and I just want to say, Quay, hello, Nelda Lewis, Patricia Salas. I am from Tobik First Nation, which is a Maliseet community in New Brunswick, Canada. And it's a great honor to be with you here this evening. And I look forward to, to our discussion. I did prepare a PowerPoint um, that I will ask it to be brought up so that I can share some of my ideas and thoughts with you this evening. So I had um, had the idea that I needed a new uh, mantra and and that new mantra is creating space for balance. And in regards to indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge and the two-eyed seeing approach and how it can apply to environmental justice and media, I thought that this was you know, a very apt opportunity to be able to share some of the um, insights from two of the elders who have been leading um, the co-creation and co-learning process that is enabled through adopting the two-wide seeing approach. In order to 
um, I guess, get started on my presentation, I would ask for the next slide. Andrew, it's not advancing. Um. It's not advancing, it's showing on mine as the second. I'm on the second slide on mine. Yeah, um, you may need to unshare and try again. It depends on how you selected the window when you shared your screen. I see, I see. Okay. Um, does that show any different? Yes. Yes. With acknowledgments? Okay, good. Yes. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. Um, so as, as part of our protocol, we often um, start with our acknowledgements. And so in my acknowledgement, I'd like to give thanks to the MIT Graduate Program in Comparative Media Studies and Professor James Paradis as my host faculty member, as well as the Institute Community and Equity Office that the MLK Visiting Scholar Program is a part of. I'd also like to give thanks for the MIT Native American Student Association and alumni, as well as the MIT American Indian Science and Engineering Society, as well as supportive colleagues, friends and family who are supporting me and of course helping me to, to achieve what I can in this uh, wonderful year of, although it's, it's virtual, I'm still very, very glad and grateful to, to be a part of this program. Next slide, please. Further acknowledgements as part of protocol is to give thanks to the waters, the ground, the trees, the plants, the crawlers, the swimmers, the winged ones, the two-legged and the four-legged as well to give thanks for our levels of creation, which is of course above us, below us, and what is on the surface. As well to acknowledge and give thanks to the seen and unseen, as well as our ancestors, all of our ancestors, past, present, and future. I'd also like to give acknowledgement to the spirit of songs, dances, languages, and our dreams. And being the uh, one of the MLK scholars, I, I feel it's very important to always draw upon the legacy of Dr. King and the very, um, the very essence of so much of his wisdom is based on many of the notable quotes that have been captured um, as part of that legacy. And I'd like to share just one um, with you as a way to ground this work and, and the work that I do. He said, make a career of humanity, commit yourself to the noble struggle of equal rights it will make a greater person of yourself, a greater nation of your country, and a finer world to live in. Next slide, please. 
as well, I would like to provide the um, acknowledgement to the land acknowledgement, MIT land acknowledgement. MIT acknowledges Indigenous peoples as the traditional stewards of the land and the enduring relationship that exists between them and their traditional territories. The land on which we sit is the traditional unceded territory of the Wampanoag Nation. We acknowledge the painful history of genocide and forced occupation of their territory and we honor and respect the many diverse Indigenous peoples connected to the land on which we gather from time immemorial. Next slide, please. As well, I want to give acknowledgement to the protocol. And as I've outlined, many Indigenous nations follow many levels of protocol, such as ceremonial protocol, spiritual protocol, language protocol, cultural protocol, community protocol, internation protocol, and interpersonal protocol. Acknowledging protocol, knowing protocol, and honoring protocol is an essential element to establishing respectful relationships. Relationship building on protocol is a culturally sensitive and appropriate way of demonstrating care and concern for well being. Following protocol is meant to ensure inclusion, gratitude, and acceptance at the forefront of recognizing the spirit of all that is brought together and provides protection from what may be negative. Next slide, please. So delving into the subject at hand, two-wide seeing, I did just want to give a little bit of context before we also delve into some of the um, YouTube references that I'm going to share with you tonight. Two-wide seeing approach in redressing systemic discrimination and environmental racism and injustice is based in, on the idea that there is a combined vision necessary to understand the plight of life today. Some Wolustuk elders or Maliseet elders have noted that what happens to our relatives, the four-legged, the swimmers, the flyers, the crawlers, those seen and unseen will happen to us too. What humans are doing to their surroundings is having a devastating and lasting impact to life. Climate change does exist and that it is man-made. Climate change is not only about impacts to humans, but to all life. And that is a story about life and death. And there is great grief, sorrow and anger in the telling of this story. Further, that we understand that humans are but one of, are but only one species of 8.7 million. It is going to take a reconnecting of vision between two competing worldviews to fully understand where we are at and what needs to change, knowing how to use the best of both. Next slide, please. So, at this point, I'm going to share with you um, our two elders that um, I'm going to reference in the next part of the presentation. 
Can we play the first then second link, please? Working. In English, it means that um, to be mindful of maintaining that interconnection, interdependency with, 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 our, with all of creation. We have to do it on a daily, on a, on a daily ritual basis. Let's use the word prayer. We use that format of not just acknowledging, but expressing our appreciation to what she has given us. And, and also to remind ourselves as to what our responsibilities are of ensuring that during our little short stay here in this physical plane, we have to somehow, we have to find a way and be mindful as to how we go about exercising our inherent responsibilities of ensuring that no action that we, that we will take will ever compromise the ecological integrity of the area, nor compromise the cleansing capacity of the system. Because our overall objective is to ensure that the next seven generations will also have the same opportunities as we have, and hopefully better opportunities than we have of not just being able to sustain themselves and, and harvest the gifts from the Creator, but also be able to enjoy and learn from, 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 from her, just like what our ancestors have, have learned from her. I'm Regina Marshall. I'm a retired associate professor. I'm a grandmother and a great-grandmother. I was born in 1942 in Waikagma. I left Waikagma at one year and moved to the big centralization party that the federal government planned. And I was caught up in that. Well, when you're invited to a party, you're not going to say no. I grew up here, was educated at the uh, day school. Indian Day School until grade nine, I think. And then I went to Arishat for a year or two. Then I transferred to St. Joseph's Convent in Mabu. Mm -hmm. After high school, I got married. And everybody was gone hold to marry me because I wasn't yet pregnant. So my father was delighted when I asked him, holy mackerel, when he said. <laughs> Because in those days, you only need high school to survive and get married as soon as you can before you're in the family way. <laughs> I decided to go back to school. And I went to a, a teacher's college. They have that early childhood program. Mm -hmm. But I, when I found out you cannot teach in a regular school program with that certificate, I think it's only three or something like that. Then I moved on to UNB, 
and there I received my um, Bachelor of Education degree. And then from there I moved to, uh, I went on to Harvard and received my uh, Master's in Administration, social, uh, Planning and Social Policies. And from there I realized the greatest need for Iskasoni was to entrap the language. To, to make it static so it doesn't erode any longer. So I went to St. Uh, Thomas University and graduated with a, with a certificate program of uh, teaching the average, uh, indigenous languages and training teachers. And then I uh, worked for, went to work for the University of uh, CBU and was there for 18 years until I took sick. Okay. I've always been concerned about the language. Uh, I decided to prepare my education endeavors working towards and around language. And I've been doing that. Although my, my master's is, is in administration, at the university where I worked, that wasn't a discipline I was in. So I, first year I did um, curricula, and the next year after I made the curriculum, they asked me to teach it. So uh, I uh, taught. Yeah. yeah, but at the end I was so beat. I had five classes to fulfill the uh, need. It drained me out of my own energy and out of my own spunk. Not that I'm bragging, I'm the, I'm the savior of the world, but uh, I was able to open some of their minds. When I left, they had to replace me with three people. Because <laughs> they drove me mad, completely mad. I haven't left Cape Breton much except for education. I, uh, I enjoy uh, Cape Breton. I enjoy the water. I was born that far from the water, I guess, a couple hundred feet. And I've always lived near water. And when I go somewhere like Calgary or, and there's no water around, I feel very uncomfortable and unable to sleep and, you know, because I miss that air. Not the waves, but I miss that air coming from the sea. But Cape Breton has been my favorite spot in the world. Not having so much choices, but uh, the places where I have been, oh, excuse me, always drives me, draws me back to Cape Breton. I like the hospitality and the familiarity of the place. And, um, we lived in Boston for a while, like all, mostly all Cape Britons do. Uh, but we came home because I wanted my children to speak uh, their own language and to recognize the most precious thing in the meanwhile life, and that's family. I want them to experience uh, their aunts and uncles and cousins and how they're, how they're connected to them. And I, I give my greatest credit to my grandfather. He was my mentor, even when I was uh, into marriage, he was still my mentor. 
and my aunt Jessie G. Dora, the medicine woman. Those two had the greatest impact in my life. Uh, and my other aunt, Aunt Catherine, who taught me the hieroglyphics. And another aunt taught me how to tell stories and preserve uh, legends and all that. The Mi'kmaq language has no preposition. It has no word order. It has no gender. There are seven pronouns that you use cons consistently. And there's five tenses. So it's, uh, that's a dying art of five tenses. They have the past, present, and future, but they're missing out on the healing tense. And they're missing out on the spiritual tense. And they're both self-healing. When you were a little kid, and you have no television, radio, or Atari, or anything like that, you, uh, you listen to stories, and you, tend to sit around the fire after supper and everything. Well, in the meanwhile world, there was also a thing as supper, dinner, or breakfast. You eat when you're hungry. Your body, your body dictates your, 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 you. It does, you don't dictate your body. And so when you want to go to the bathroom, you don't wait for the bee parade. You go, see one, oh. So you, we have these stories. Different people would come in in the evenings and visit and tell stories. And I received a lot of stories from listening to my own grandparents and my own aunts and uncles. The stars were your guiding point. They were, the constellations were your calendar. If you look up in the sky, you know what season it is, by the way. The constellations are arranged. They're also your guides for travel and stuff like that. Now, the, take for instance the constellation of uh, the Dipper. Now, that's a long stretch to teach you uh, seasons of the year, months of the year, and uh, how the how the bear is situated. It will tell you what time of the year it is, whether it's late spring or, or mid-summer or beginning of fall. Or, by the way, the constellations are arranged. And the equinoxes and the salts play an important role in your determining the movement of the earth. And so you sort of know these stories uh, uh, because you know them through people telling them. But as you grow up, you don't know really what, why they tell you the stories until you yourself begin to take up an interest in, in the sky or night stories or, or astronomy. Then you begin to piece these pieces together, these stories attached to this constellation and vice versa. I have no one to thank but my family. These stories didn't, uh, didn't come automatically. It was through experience and remembering. Because and, when, when a story is told to you and it's interesting, it's hard to kick it out of your mind. No, it'll stay there, it's engraved there. So those two elders, Dr. Albert and Dr. Merdina Marshall, 
along with Cheryl Bartlett, worked through Cape Breton University in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Canada, to create the Institute for Integrative Science and Health. And that institute lasted from 2006 to 2012. And the institute offered a science degree program. Since Prof Professor Bartlett has retired and the program has transitioned into another department, there is still a growing segment of science faculty in universities across Canada that have sought to adopt the two-eyed seeing learning approach to enrich their solely Western-based programs. As a way of sharing this with MIT, I am hoping that there, that there are those amongst you that seek a similar vision of learning that can create not only a higher level of success, but also a greater degree of connectivity in learning that will enable, enable superior learning paradigm development and research in creating a better world for all. Next slide, please. So we have another two um, segments on YouTube. If we could play one, then the next, Andrew. That's how it started. The communities, the elders were concerned that there were not any students from their communities going into the sciences. Two I see really is, it's and has to be your guiding principles as to how one should live while you are here on this, on, on this earth. Through Eyed Seeing, as brought to us by Elder Albert Marshall, uh, Mi'kmaq Elder Deskasoni, is recognizing that there are different ways of looking at the world, and maybe two of those ways are the Western scientific way, and the indigenous peoples or the aboriginal peoples way. And that two-eyed seeing refers to finding the strengths in both of those, the Western and the indigenous, and mindfully bringing those strengths together, uh, drawing upon the deep understandings that they represent, the strengths of each, and uh, bringing them together to work together to go forward on this planet together. I feel that what we learned as First Nations people in your own identity, Mi'kmaq, is valuable. I also believe that the concepts being brought on by Europeans is also valuable in today's world. And you try to bring those two together and, and look at it through two eyes, seeing that both are very valuable and both can be, can be achieved. Our airs are poisoned, our rivers are poisoned, our forests are pretty much gone. And the animals are, are, are extinct even as we speak. With this two-wise scene, we very quickly realize and see that science, science is not going to save 
the environment or the natural world, but rather rather uh, a change of a change of attitude, change change of mindsets. I see the strengths of Western science as being uh, the ability to uh, look at the physical world, see the patterns within it, and take those patterns apart and find the mechanisms or try to search for the mechanisms that, that bring those patterns into existence. And then on the basis of that reconstructed understanding, um, try to improve upon our material existence often uh, for humans on this world. I see the strengths of the indigenous peoples on the other hand of uh, also seeing the patterns uh, in the world, but rather than taking them apart to reconstruct them, it's more of a working of patterns within patterns. In other words, a weaving of yourself and your understandings into the uh, world in which you live. I think one of the most uh, exciting and useful ways to teach science would be to use one of the methods from science itself, which is the compare and contrast. Why can't we educate our science students as to what the mainstream way of doing science is and compare it in contrast with another way of doing science from an indigenous perspective. Why can't we put them side by side and use them to help a student develop a better understanding of what mainstream science is and what other perspectives on science are? That's a scientific method, compare and contrast. Basically, the, the education system has taught us to, to absorb every knowledge we get without actually, without actually uh, questioning it or, or looking at it from another perspective. Why do we think that we can teach by focus on, on the one thing when the whole of human consciousness is not a focus on one thing? It's always a back and forth, a scanning of the environment and a compare and contrast and a past and a future within the present. With Mi'kmaq identity, as I was growing up, I didn't know any other identity because I was being trained in Mi'kmaq, I was trained in a language, and in the language are embedded all of your, your, oral, or your oral traditions, all your moral, and all your uh, everyday life. Your history is involved in it, because when you went to bed at night without the uh, competition of television, Atari, and everything else, you had stories. You had stories about your own history. You had stories about, about everything that it was required to make you into a better human being. Part of the struggle of anybody, I, I don't think it matters who you are, is to ask yourself and to learn who am I. So if an educational system uh, ignores part of who, who you think you are uh, simply because it doesn't include your people's understandings, as for example, if the science curricula does not include any of the understandings that uh, Canada's Aboriginal peoples have with respect to the land that they've occupied for thousands of years, then that uh, ability to develop a well-balanced and deep understanding of who you are as a young Aboriginal in Canada today is going to be denied. Our journey here is not meant for one, one perspective or one consciousness to get us through. We, we all need each other. So the, the lessons that we are trying to put forth now is to, the, to our young people, it's going to be much more expedient if we can take the best of whatever tools the white man has brought forth and the tools what our forefathers had left us with.
this tool I've seen is valuable when you when you pick from the two from you when you pick from two worlds and try to uh, co-join co-join those two is I find it very difficult but I know it has to be done I know in, you can I can't I can't crawl into my culture and say oh that's all I need to survive in this world I also know that you need the white man's education to uh, to uh, survive in this world and be happy. And uh, and and I think the white man also needs me to what I what I have to offer. We have a challenge ahead of us to bring to the attention of that educational system that the Western way of looking at things is but one way. Paraphrasing uh, Chief Dan Jorsein, we shall take the instruments of the white man, his tools and his education, and we incorporate them with ours so we can create a better world for everyone. As we know that there are many who want to utilize two-wide seeing as a tool that can help themselves and others understand the Indigenous worldview and how it can help create a better path to environmental justice, Indigenous justice, and human justice. There is a strong connection being developed between two-wide seeing and seeing more equity in relations between all life on Earth. I am going to share with you two practitioners, both Indigenous, both in two different parts of this country, both striving to use this tool in their work, and both present their stories and thoughts based on the two wide seeing. Next, yeah. Good evening, my name is Evan Plesla Adams, and I'm so happy to uh, present some ideas to you tonight around the, the very simple concept of two-eyed seeing, which uh, most of us are, are lucky enough to have. Um, these two masks were uh, collected here in the north of British Columbia. One is in the Louvre in Paris, and uh, one is at the Canadian Museum of Civilization in Gatineau, uh, and one is blind and one is sighted, and it might represent uh, maybe us looking at you or looking forward and back. Now, this is a fish. It's called a sole. You've probably eaten it. 
It's a very humble fish. Uh, it can look in two directions at once. It's a, it's a bit unlike um, human beings who have binocular vision, but they usually look, those eyes look in the same direction, from, but from slightly different positions. So is two-eyed seeing or looking forward and looking back uh, whimsical? Is it avant-garde? Is it post-colonial? Maybe it's part of being the pluralistic multicultural success story of being in modern Canada. Maybe this is reconciliation. And maybe two-eyed seeing is the ability to look inward and outward at once. Uh, maybe we can self-reflect. Uh, maybe we must look ourselves in the eye, see the truth, and be able to sleep at night. And maybe two-eyed seeing is hopeful or beautiful, or it's the idea of balance, the idea of getting back to optimism and to beauty. Maybe two-eyed seeing is about love and family and togetherness, um, strength, acceptance. Maybe it's about prosperity of both um, or of all. Now, two-eyed seeing is a concept um, that exists um, in indigenous culture. Um, and there is a, a very famous academic, uh, Mr. Albert uh, Marshall, who talks about two-eyed seeing as learning to see with the strengths of each other and together, looking one eye with the strengths of indigenous knowledges and ways of knowing, and with the other eye, the strengths of Western knowledges and ways of knowing, and that together we can look forward. So here's another way of seeing, 1492, two eyes coming together, Christopher Columbus uh, arriving in the, off an island in the Caribbean. He was lost looking for India. Uh, and uh, that arrival set off a great time or period of exploration for Europeans. This is a painting uh, of uh, Captain Cook when he was killed by Native Hawaiians um, on the big island of Hawaii in 1779. And aboard that ship was a midshipman named George Vancouver. George Vancouver came to the coast of British Columbia again and again and again. Uh, here's his, his, um, a, a portrait drawn when he came to my mother's village in 1792, uh, Cortez Island. Of course, my mother hadn't been born yet. She was born about uh, a kilometer from here. And so for me, uh, Captain Vancouver um, is very real. And we have very many stories about those. This is my great-grandfather, uh, Tom Charlie Adams, who was born in 1860. This picture was taken of him in 1930 when he entered hospital with dementia. Uh, and uh, he's alive. He's blind. So he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he didn't, I hear, open his eyes um, as he walked about. And uh, he uh, lost his vision to smallpox. This is Canada. This is Canada. 1867. It looks different from our image of Canada today. I know when you imagine Canada in your minds, it's not this picture. Uh, and of course, I'll point out the two solitudes of English Canada and French Canada. Uh, we were there too. Um, but can you imagine Canada with indigenous roots? Well, part of its indigenous roots were um, the Indian Act, a federal act um, born in 1876, 140 years ago, uh, that uh, took great um, measures in controlling the lives of indigenous people. These are my parents. I'm sitting in my dad's lap. And uh, one of my sisters died when I was about five years old. She was accidentally shot to death by the boy next door. And I tell that story uh, because I knew even then, even as a five-year-old, that communities and people were meant to be organized to help each other, that that wasn't supposed to happen. And my family, who was quite wounded by that, 
um, deserved help, and we should be organized enough to help. So the challenge for us today in Canada is that health outcomes between First Nations and other Canadians is different. It, it's unacceptable, it's unethical, and it's sustain, unsustainable. And so uh, what shall we do? Just to point out, Dr. Kamara Jones in Undoing Racism describes in A Gardener's Tale that a gardener notices that pink flowers grow taller than red flowers, and she thinks pink flowers are better forgetting that she's planted them in different parts of the garden, one in rich soil and one in poor soil. And so we discussed the, the idea of the social determinants of indigenous health, that the quality of health, the quality of life, the length of life, the lack of suffering is tied to poverty, to education and to housing, of course, for all of us, but for indigenous people, it's also related to culture and to self-determination, that the lack of determination can change one's health. Here are two, um, Aboriginal medical student who graduated just a, a few weeks ago uh, in my teaching at UBC. Um, we discovered that 31 out of 32 Aboriginal medical students had racist experiences that were strong enough to discourage them from continuing, and we had to talk to them about staying in their programs. And thus the idea comes forward, if we're going to face uh, the inevitability of a racist experience, perhaps we should be armed for racist experiences. And that doesn't mean that all of you or all of us are racist, simply that the reaction, the idea of resistance and resilience is one that we must live with. When I moved to BC with my new medical degree and I went to St. Paul's Hospital, I went into the doctor's lounge, I was very proud, I looked exactly like this. Uh, within five minutes, the security guard came up to me and he said, I'm, I'm sorry, sir, one of the doctors has reported that there's an Indian in the doctor's lounge. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, yeah, you better get used to it. <laughs> Part of my work is to work with Aboriginal populations. One day we had a chief who was fighting for the return of an infant who had died. The chief coroner said, by law, I'm allowed to keep this infant body uh, for as long as I see fit and I can remove parts of that body and keep them in order to determine a cause of death. And the chief slammed his fist on the ground or on the table and said, we know you think you're in charge, but we think that's our baby. So to get where we need to go, we may need to fly in a different way. I showed this to an elder and she said, oh yeah, the male eagle flies up down when it is having sex. And I said, oh, that's <laughs> not quite what I wanted to say. And she said, yeah, that's a sexy eagle, thank you. And just so we know, we're about that 10 minute mark that you asked me to point out. Gwe Nindeluisi Rebecca. Hi, my name is Rebecca. Shall we? The language you speak fundamentally shapes your worldview and everything that goes along with it. And this concept is specifically amplified when it comes to indigenous languages. Indigenous language weaves its way through every aspect of who we are as people, from how we interact with the physical world, how we build our communities, and how we carry our culture forward. And with that comes a unique perspective. And it's that perspective that I'm going to try to create for you so that when I introduce the concept of eduoptimunk, of two-eyed seeing, you'll understand why it's so important. So to begin, a study published in Psychological Sciences called Two Languages, Two Minds broke down grammatical tools that situate actions in time. They showed photographs to English and German speakers and asked them to describe what was going on in them. 
So for example, they showed a woman walking in a parking lot. English speakers said, this is a woman walking. Whereas German speakers said, this is a woman walking to her car. They showed another photograph, a man riding his bicycle. Once again, English speakers honed in on the action and said, this is a man riding his bicycle, whereas German speakers needed to add a destination to complete their context, even though that destination wasn't featured in the photograph. This is a man riding his bicycle to the library or to the supermarket. And what's interesting is that English marks events as ongoing. We're very action-oriented in our language. So if I'm writing a poem when my spouse calls and he asks me what I'm doing, I'll say I'm writing, regardless of the fact that I had stopped to answer the phone. German simply doesn't have this feature. And so it's interesting to see the two worldviews these languages carry, even though they have a common root. So what happens when you have a group of people with a language that has no common root but must operate within a completely foreign framework? Specifically, how do indigenous people find success in a colonized world? Now the saying, things get lost in translation, rings truer than you might imagine when it comes to indigenous languages. This is Mi'kmaq territory, and many of you might have heard the word jalasi to mean welcome. That's what it's used for, but the literal translation of the concept equates to, I'll do my best. That's a much more nuanced and meaningful interaction. In this moment, a person-to-person -person contract is being agreed upon. Think about that. In this moment, I will try for you. So. Language, so language isn't just something we use to get our points across. As I said, it's woven into who we are as people and our notions of a broader identity. So Robert Thomas, no relation, wrote about that, that broader identity and he called it peoplehood when referring to indigenous peoples. Now the term peoplehood is a little bit odd, so I'm gonna break it down for you. Peoplehood differs from identity in that it not only encompasses the individual identity, but how that person ties it to a larger collection of peoples and how that in turn connects them to other people within that collective. So for example, I don't speak Mi'kmaq and I grew up off reserve, but I still identify as a Mi'kmaq person. I'm still within the concept of a Mi'kmaq peoplehood and that in turn connects me to somebody who grew up on reserve and who speaks the language. And it's getting a bit complex, so please bear with me. Peoplehood is made up of four things, territory, sacred history, ceremonial cycle, and language. Each thread informs the other. You can't address a single aspect of it without looking at the whole. Think of a spider web. If you clip a single thread that anchors it, the whole thing starts to collapse. So the Mi'kmaq language, for example, with its unique characteristics, gives meaning to a sacred history which dictates the use of the land, which is crucial to the appropriate execution of a ceremonial cycle, which in turn is performed in many of the languages that those ceremonies encompass. So firstly, that is a direct quote from my MA, so I'm gonna take this moment and feel vindicated in my decision to pursue another arts degree. And secondly, indigenous peoples are complicated and complex. Imagine centuries ago when we were writing the treaties and the language we were communicating in encompassed how we would use the land, how would we carry our culture forward, how would we develop relationships with the settlers and colonizers. Now how much of that was lost in translation when they were recorded in English and French? 
So I digress, but remember those four strands, language, ceremonial cycle, territory, and sacred history. The best part about peoplehood is that it is tremendously flexible. We can swap out and alter some of those strands without compromising our status as indigenous people. So once again, I'm gonna use my lived experience as an example. You already know I don't speak Mi'kmaq, and that's because through residential school, my primary language thread has been replaced with English and French. So if I go to a ceremony that's conducted entirely in the Mi'kmaq language, the significance of that ceremony might not fully resonate with me because I won't understand the full scope of what's being said, but that does not diminish who I am as a Mi'kmaq person. Furthermore, there are many Mi'kmaq people who are practicing Catholics. So even though they smudge and they dance and they drum and they sweat, they also go to church and pray in the Mi'kmaq language and that does not take away from them. They have woven another set of ceremonies into their ceremonial thread. Because being an indigenous person is a lived experience. It's, there's no spectrum whereby somebody is more or less native than somebody else. Any arguments over authenticity are us internalizing a history of colonialism that has created rubrics and tools to measure our ethnicity. And blood quantum has nothing to do with it. The fact that my mother is non-native does not take away from the fact that I am a Mi'kmaq person. So with that said, I'm gonna check in with you guys. Language shapes your worldview and is one of four aspects that create an indigenous peoplehood, an indigenous understanding of knowing of how the world works. So when you look at the picture that I'm trying to paint for you, you're gonna understand what you're looking at. So here's the picture. Indigenous peoples are the fastest growing demographic in Canada. Our median age is 28 years old compared to that of 43 to the non-native world. And what that means is you're going to see more of us in your classrooms, in your workspaces, and in your public spaces. The world is going to have to learn to interact with us in ways that are more meaningful and significant than what they have done in the past. I don't need to elaborate for you all to know, we don't have the best history. So what? That's the question I always get asked. How does this apply to the real world? I work in student services, in education. I act as a go-between for the native and non-native world. I advocate for students who have a hard time speaking up about themselves. I coach faculty on how to have appropriate cultural supports. And yet, in spite of what I try to do, sometimes the effects an indigenous student feels are too great, and they leave to go home. And it's not that they're not smart, it's not that they aren't capable of doing the work, it's just that this world doesn't get them. Our protocols, our concepts of time, our ethics, etc., are just different. And it doesn't mean we can't communicate with your world, we've been doing it for the better part of five centuries, it's that we ask that you now try to communicate with our world. And it is at this moment that I introduce the concept of eduoptimum, of two-wide seeing. It was introduced by Elder Albert Marshall. Two-eyed seeing takes, takes the strengths of both a colonized world and both an indigenous world and asks that the user see through both lenses simultaneously to find success. It is the Mi'kmaq understanding of the gift of multiple perspectives to see multiple contexts simultaneously. For example, you see Nova Scotia, Nouvelle-Écosse, Canada, we see 
Mi'kma'ki, traditional territory, Turtle Island. It's not either or, it's both at the same time. Two-Eyed Seeing was originally introduced to build greater capacity for STEM programming for indigenous students in post-secondary institutions and is now being adopted nationally by organizations and institutions who are interested in transcultural collaboration. Two-Eyed Seeing implies responsibilities for reciprocity, mutual accountability, and co-learning. It's what we tried to build our treaties on. We want you to know about us and we want success in this world, but we are no longer willing to give up our world to do it. And you might be asking yourself, why would I go through so much trouble to indigenize the institution for such a small number of students? And the answer, my friends, is beautiful. It has been shown, it has been proven that when institutions implement indigenous pedagogy and learning styles, students across the board benefit, native and non-native. Because we recognize the multiple contexts and paradigms that learners learn through, our ways of teaching have traditionally been more universal and more inclusive. So, with all of my academic speak and concept introduction, I bring it back to the elders who always tend to say it best. With regards to education and relationship building, according to Albert Marshall, the foundational basis of any relationship is an exchange of stories. So as a storyteller and as a poet, I will leave you all with what I do best a poem entitled Eduaptamak. I lost my talk, said Rita Jo. For me, I was never given the option to know, to feel the flow of the words as they rolled off my tongue, giving me the lyrics of how our world was sung. My perspective was spun using the threads of both your world and theirs, left to cobble together a spirit from rags and tears, painfully aware that I was different. Through hard work and determination, I found my indigenous articulation, a compilation of two ways, makes up the sum of me. You have two eyes, yet you only have one view. Your way is best, you would argue. Centuries of being in position to subdue those who would aspire. They say the sun never set on the British Empire. And because we recognize the hubris that defines your story, we have both a sunrise and a sunset in our territory. With my heart and eyes, I have a completely different view. The consequence of my skin comes in an entirely different hue. Don't you see, although you represent us, we think very differently than you because we see the world not through one set of eyes, but through two. Thousands of years long, we were independent, proud, and strong. We belong to this earth the way power belongs to money and privilege to birth. We put our communities first. But then came the fleets filled with those you would ironically define today as come from a way to invade every inch of our world, to break our spirits and pull the threads that would unfurl us to catch the way you speak. But this is not a poem for the retelling of a one-sided history. Each of our worlds has their strengths. Yours is in power. It gets to eat its cake and define race. It has the ability to unapologetically take up space if societal progress is linear. This society is top tier, terra nullius, as though we were never here. It must be nice to be so confident. 
This society is ubiquitous, built on reified rubrics of tradition and rhetoric. Your notions of diversity are ad hoc in nature, an afterthought feature to an immovable structure. But this is not a conviction nor an acquittal. Just the voice coming from an eye trained to be critical. And if you push the two sides of our Venn diagram together, you'll get our circle. We were never meant to be static like the rivers around us. We shift and change and remain dynamic. We bring something to the table that is able to change your worldview and show you what we are capable of, that a lot can come from a holistic concept of the earth. You are not a plague, nor we a curse or a problem in need of a solution. And we've got to rid ourselves of the spiritual dissolution, the dilution of our treaties written to share this land. And I ask that you understand that we are the experts on what we need. Don't feed us your good intentions. Carefully laid apologies will not get you an historical exemption. We plan our actions for the next seven generations and we invite you to do the same. Open your other set of eyes, take a pause and start breathing. Welcome to the world of two eyed seeing. Thank you. So in terms of these practitioners and, and the two um, people that we just saw, you know, it brings up a lot around what can we learn? What do we know? How do we learn? Who can benefit? How how does how we learn matter? Referenced in both of these presentations was the connection to where they came from, the need for sharing stories, the ability to connect experiences and lessons learned, the richer the opportunity to learn from other perspectives through a lens that allows for incorporating vision and spirit and information and to be able to communicate from that space is a path to creating balance. In dealing with issues of environmental justice, as I have been through the, as I have been through the class that I am a guest lecturer in with Professor Paradis and John, it has allowed a new door to open to discussing how convergence of extraction, environmental justice, and media studies is powerfully related. Next slide, please. Recently, in our comparative media studies class, Professor Macarena Gomez Barris gave a presentation and referenced her work, The Extractive Zone, which contains the following comment. Before the colonial project could prosper, it had to render territories and peoples extractable. And it so through a matrix of symbolic, physical, and representational violence. Therefore, the extractive view sees territories as commodities, rendering land as for the taking, while also devalorizing the hidden world that came from that, sorry, while also devalorizing the hidden world that formed the nexus of human and non-human multiplicity. This viewpoint, similar to colonial gaze, facilitates the reorganization of territories populations and plant and animal life into extractable data and natural resources for material and immaterial accumulation. Two-wide seeing is a way of creating the space for balance in the systemic, systematic approach to extraction and the creation of wealth. As acknowledged and as we sit here through this pandemic, we must open two eyes and see 
We cannot sustain future generations through willful blindness. Next slide, please. Two-eyed seeing as related to the media, we have the opportunity to create innovative and meaningful messages of collaboration through adopting a two-eyed seeing approach. We can build new pathways, new protocols, new relationships based on respect for ourselves and each other. It is time that we put down the fear of not knowing and developing our abilities to instinctually know what we need to create sustainability and equality for our young. We can learn and grow in accepting the need for systemic change, the need for systemic security and well being as impetus for innovation and research. We can truly go within and see the world through clarity and keep moving towards holistic well being. We can become teachable. Media has a role and a responsibility to informing and allowing opportunities to educate and inform about two-eyed seeing. It will be worth the effort. Next slide, please. And in conclusion, there is one last brief clip that I wanted to share with you. Welcome to C2019. I'm very honored to open this conference with a Bridges Theme Award to Elder Albert Marshall and his late wife, Mardina. Albert, you are my trusted guide for how I should look at, embrace, and also engage with the world around me. Through you and through Mardina and your writings, and most importantly, your spirit, we receive guidance and mentorship on how to set aside personal ambitions to set aside pain and darkness and turn to trusting and to assisting. I want to thank the Canadian Evaluation Association for giving me this opportunity to be part of a tribute uh, to someone who had the wisdom years ago to understand that we need to respect and appreciate the other. And this wisdom is today more valuable than at any time as we, the people in the world, tend to drift apart at the moment. And this is exactly the time where we need to stop for a moment and look at what combines us, what, what we can blend together to take the best from all of us in order to improve what we do, our practice, and the world. Toyd Seen, I think, really has played an important role in increasing the understanding of the Indigenous ways of knowing and doing, as well as Indigenous ways of evaluating. By saying that we're looking at the strengths of the Western world with one eye and the strengths of the indigenous world with another eye, it really becomes a non-threatening way to engage people in evaluation and increases their likelihood to understand that in fact, you can accept indigenous evaluation practice in a way that increases the authenticity of your work. Two-Eyed Seeing allows us to better understand the challenges that we face. Working with organizations and ideas like Blue Marble Evaluation 
This provides us an important principle to bring forth to the world and it is with great, great honor that we celebrate this work of Elder Albert Marshall and his late wife, Merdina, on the work of Two-Eyed Seeing. I had the privilege of engaging with Elder Marshall at the Canadian Evaluation Society when we discussed together uh, rights-based evaluation. And what we found in that engagement was that Two-Eyed Seeing informs all kinds of evaluation, including the work that I've been involved in over the last few years on blue marble evaluation. Blue marble refers to looking at the earth as a whole as seen from outer space. And in our engagement together, blue marble evaluation and two-eyed seeing are completely integrated as is integrative science. And so what we have found in blue marble evaluation and in two-eyed seeing is the integration of the local and the global, is the integration of theory and practice, is looking across different sectors and issues to see their commonalities, is to look across artificial boundaries of nation states, so that what we are empty, attempting to do in creating a sustainable future, as Two-Eyed Seeing instructs us, is to combine the human and the natural. On June 21st of 2017, I went out to fast and I prayed for the spirits of these women and girls that had been missing or murdered in New Brunswick. I prayed for the spirits of the families that I would be working with. And, and I knew that energy would be really strong and that even though the victims, they're no longer here in a physical sense, their spirits are always with us. And so I wanted to approach this project in a good way. And that meant taking it to ceremony. And in terms of evaluation, we look at how many times we've gone to, to ceremony. We talk about the importance of narratives and the qualitative, um, the qualitative feedback from families, not just the written feedback. And, and I really owe that to Albert and Merdino. They provided me with uh, some valuable lessons about how how important our worldview is. They, they, they taught me to value who I am and where I come from and why I am the way I am. They taught me how to value the territory that we come from, the land, the water, and even the different ways we show that appreciation through song, through dance, through painting. And then it, it doesn't always have to look like Western mainstream methods. And I just want to say thank you to Albert for taking his time and his energy to pray on these things. 
and to be so wise and to share and to have faith that these teachings will go on and, and spread throughout Mother Earth to everyone. So in conclusion, I just wanted to close with another quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, we have flown the air like birds and swum the sea like fishes, but we have yet to learn the simple act of walking the earth like brothers. Elaine Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that presentation, Patricia. Um, we, have, we have time for, um, for questions uh, from our, maybe, yeah. we'll open up so we feel clearly. Uh, anyway, uh, so we can switch our view here. Laura, Laura do you want to uh, Scott? I'm oh, sorry, we're seeing hands raised. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Whoever. I'm sorry, whoever's uh, raised the hand should feel free to speak. Hi, so I, I raised my hand, but I just wanted to ensure first that there wasn't someone else who is uh, specifically in Indigenous um, Canadian and U.S. studies who would like to ask a question before me. Just out of respect. No, okay. Thank you so much for this presentation. I greatly appreciate it as someone who um, works on Indigenous communities in, in um, the Middle Eastern and North African region. So thank you. Um, this was one wonderful. Um, I have a few questions um, and wondered if you could clarify um, just um, certain points of, of the pedagogy that that this is advocating for. Um, and, and in one of the videos, uh, one of the uh, one of the women, she was talking about um, the um, relevance of compare and contrast. As, as an important way to approach um, two-eyed seeing. And I'm, I'm wondering if comparing and contrast um, unconsciously privileges Western thought as, as an ontological approach that indigenous learning is, is always already measured against, um, or, or how do you approach, or how do you account for certain inherent imbalances in, in, in power um, due to supposed rationality of, of Western thought. Um, and, and I just really am curious about this uh, for my own pedagogy. And if you also have a um, recommendation for a repository of, of this information for um, pedagogical thought, I would really appreciate you sharing that as well. Well, Ewan, thank you. I think that's an excellent question. And oftentimes, um, you know, folks are folks are wondering how can we approach this from, I guess the the understanding that both indigenous knowledge systems and Western knowledge systems are legitimate, and so one 
from the outset understands and I guess would, we would say appreciates that one system is not privileged or, or seen as having higher authority or claim to um, truthfulness that, that the other system does not also carry that. So, so I know that, you know, me saying that doesn't um, necessarily address your question, but I know as far as getting the understandings and the teachings directly from, you know, our elders and, and others who are practicing too wide seeing, that is something that they would reference at the outset of bringing forward this, um, these ideas. And, and I think it's really important that, you know, along with understanding the legitimacy and the place and um, the acceptance of that credibility that comes with appreciating both knowledge systems is, is an important step for folks to take because you know, as we know, we've we've had a very long time of one system being elevated um, to to almost the point of the other system um, completely disintegrating. And so, through this approach, the idea is that through revitalizing indigenous knowledge systems, we are providing and creating the space for balance, essentially. Um, because it is through that, it's through that exchange, it's through the reciprocity of, of um, you know, providing ideas and observations um, in regards to a particular, um, you know, purpose or, or matter, that it is in that, is in that cross-pollination of that discussion that, you really begin to get the, um, I guess the abundance or the fruitfulness of what that can bring into a conversation that is otherwise, you know, pretty, um, pretty, pretty set in terms of what is established knowledge on the matter. So, and as far as um, providing resources, um, I do just want to say that, you know, I have been working with um, MIT, NASA, and MIT ACES for us to create a, a reading list, actually. We, we don't actually have that as a, as a resource, and so we are going to be doing that. And, and as you could probably tell, I have a lot of uh, references that... Uh, I'm I'm compiling already, but we're we're doing it as a as a collective exercise, so that you know different different levels of uh, let's say audience and readership for the younger hip crowd and perhaps uh, you know those that uh, are are more aware of you know contemporary references that that we're going to have a range of of what's available for materials and, and what we can reference. I have a question from the chat, but before I do that, I want to open it up if there's someone in um, um, has a question uh, among the panelists. Um, 
All right, so the question from the chat is from Perry, and it's a practical question. How can science writers and science journalists and reporters find indigenous sources to help balance their reporting and bring two-eyed seeing into their journalism? Well, there is, uh, I think, a number of ways. Um, first and foremost, I would say, you know, as, as with any kind of um, journalistic exercise, you develop contacts, you develop, um, you know, references. Um, I think taking that time to do some of that foundational research about um, who's available, where you're at, and the particular matter, um, you know, is, is one um, technique. Um, I think there's another technique, and that is to actually reach out um, within MIT to the Indigenous community here. Um, we have both ACES and NASA that have, um, you know, student groups, um, and, and they are, you know, always meeting, always interested to have a good conversation. And so, you know, if, if that is more um, practical to and amenable to, you know, how someone can uh, reach out, I'd say, you know, reach out to, to the folks you may know, and they can often um, provide further contacts for, for you, depending on, depending on the subject matter. And we have a question from Caroline Jones. Hi, thank you so much for that really fascinating talk. Um, and, you know, I'm thrilled because I helped through some administrative funds to support Marisa and Jim's class. So I'm really glad that this has, has um, been such a fruitful exchange. I wanted to know um, if you had some information on how successful the two-eyed seeing has been as a pedagogy to draw uh, indigenous peoples into the sciences. Uh, you know, as an MIT faculty member, it seems like such a vital, vital part of that pedagogy. And I also just wanted to make a recommendation for a book that I'm sure you know, which to my way of reading would be on the top of your reading list, which is the PhD botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding yes. Sweetgrass, which mm -hmm. is just, it just changed my life. So um, I, I'm hoping that, you know, models such as her Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, which is drawing students from all over the US uh, to do essentially, maybe even for the first time, uh, graduate work in science that they can take back to their communities and practice on their ecosystems. Uh, it just feels to me like such a brilliant example of what you're talking about. No, for sure. And I really, really appreciate all your uh, effort and support. That is wonderful to hear. And, you know, in terms of, in terms of success, I would say that uh, you, you only have to go as far as your uh, searchable Google engine and put in two-eyed seeing, and you will find a number of both scholarly articles and um, other types of references that will provide at least foundational material. Um, you know, as far as success goes, I have, through my role with the Maliseet Nation Conservation Council, 
We have been working with Elder Albert, um, I'd say for about seven years now. And, and we have been working to incorporate two wide seeing into the work that we do with communities and with partners, um, but as well with government. And, and it's always so interesting to find and, and discover where conversations can go when it's based on this type of an openness and a willingness to learn from each other. And truly that's, that's as you know, um, difficult as it is, um, that really it, it, takes some, it takes some openness to be able to um, begin to appreciate what is being, um, I guess, explained and described as a way of communicating with each other. And that's why, you know, it, it's such a wonderful fit with CMS and the ability for, especially the students that are in our class to um, understand and to be able to hear the indigenous perspective on environmental justice and extraction and how that translates into how they use media and, and media messaging in order to bring across their stories, their concepts. And, and I you know, must say it's, it's been a tremendously positive response for myself, even just you know, in these last few months that people are incredibly receptive and, and really quite curious about how to mobilize, um, you know, some efforts and collaborations that that really are so wonderful that I think are really um, providing an opportunity for innovation and creativity, which is, you know, of course, the very best that we can do. Well, I hope some scientists also are listening. Thank you so much for your generosity. Well, Ewan. Yes, thank you, Patricia. Um, I don't see other questions, although if someone has one now, last chance. Um, but this will be, uh, this is recorded, so it'll be online. And so uh, hopefully many more people will see it as well. Um, and again, we really thank you for your, um, there is a question. There is, the there there is, is a, a pretty good Q question in the Q&A. Yeah. yeah, let's go for that. I'm sorry, I didn't see that. You need to read it out? Or can yeah, I will read it out loud, sure. How does Two-Eyed Seeing deal with contradictory conclusions? For example, the indigenous scholar Marlene Brandt Castellano maintains that indigenous knowledge includes revelatory knowledge. This involves the belief in the supernatural and things like dreams and visions, which would not be in accepted in scientific theories. If some indigenous knowledge holders are creationists, for example, how would Two-Eyed Seeing reconcile with this theory of evolution? Well, I think it's really not the it's really not the purpose of two wide seeing to reconcile irre irreconcilable differences in viewpoints. I think more so two wide seeing is meant to create the space for a balanced discussion. And and oftentimes you know, folks that are, are um, feeling, you know, that dichotomy and that opposition and, and conflict in view, even, even there, 
even in creating the space for for those views to um, coalesce and and create a dialogue, I think is is part of the process and and really providing that opportunity to respectfully listen and actually hear what people have to say. I think I think that is that is the um, that is the strength of two wide seeing is that you know no one no one is assumed to be wrong and no one is assumed to be right. We all have something to bring to the conversation and let's have it. Let's do it. Let's have that let's have that exchange. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, I hope I haven't missed anyone. If I have, by all means. Um, it, well, it looks like, uh, as, as I said, it, it, it was a fascinating, it was a fascinating presentation and it generated obviously a lot of interesting questions. And we'll be having this online. So again, so many more people can see it. So thank you for, for your effort for, for this. Well, Ewan, thank you, everyone.